Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is the creator of the YouTube channel ENTP Life. He's a real estate investor, serial entrepreneur, and educator who has been an entrepreneur for more than half of his life and his entire adult life. He's always looking for new things and places to explore, and he's lived in Colombia, Italy, and Brazil. He finances his expat life with income from his U.S. real estate business and home health care agencies. He shares his finances and business knowledge that he has with others to help them to achieve and fulfill the life that they deserve, following their dreams and passions without worries about money. Please welcome to the show, Carl Pierre. Carl, how are you? Good. How about yourself? Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I ton of things I want to explore with you today, but before we get going... Kind of walk us through your backstory. How did you get to be an entrepreneur and why real estate and why home healthcare? I would say my segue into being an entrepreneur was due to my mother. She started a nurse staffing firm when I was uh, 14 years old. And being the only computer geek in the house, I naturally became her assistant because she is computer literate. Um, So I was handling everything on the computer. That later evolved into a home healthcare company, which I ended up leading and I still run till this day. We have branches in New York and in Florida. The name of the company is Aidbook. And what home healthcare is, is essentially providing care usually to senior citizens or chronically ill people in the comfort of their home so they're not going to 
nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities and that sort of thing. Um, my start in real estate actually was by accident, like a lot of real estate investors. I was in college and my college program had like a non-matriculated post-bac year or I had to do clinicals. And me and my buddies weren't guaranteed housing. At the same time, the US housing market was going absolutely crazy. You could get a mortgage even if you were a dead person. And uh, we had the idea of buying our own house. That's what it's like to vote in the United States right now. Jeez. Yeah. Um, So at that point, we had the ability to secure a mortgage and get the first home. Um, we divided that house out. The dining room became a bedroom. The basement became a couple extra bedrooms. The den became a a bedroom. And uh, we packed the house out with college students and we're renting the house by the room. And it worked. And right after that, we decided to get a few more until the market crashed and then things changed a bit. But that was my start getting into into real estate and that was back in 2006. So here we are 15 years later, I've been at it accumulating, you know, in tandem with my, with my healthcare business, I kind of park my profits into real estate, get a nice multiple on my money by, by buying those additional assets. And uh, I always like the fact that even in the worst of times, even when the market had crashed, my rental property still performed. And I felt like it should always be my fail safe or my backup. And that's essentially how I got into real estate and, and entrepreneurship in general. So with a lot of these businesses that you run, um, you've had an opportunity to live overseas. We, we covered a couple of them very quickly in the introduction, Colombia and Italy and Brazil, beautiful, beautiful countries. So are you able to do your businesses and run your investments remotely or do you just go on vacation and come back? How does that work? So I'm able to run them remotely for Brazil and Italy. <clears throat> I'll go there for like extended stays. Um, and it's not necessarily living there. These are places that I would like to live. I, I have property in Italy. I'm actually in the process of purchasing something now in Brazil. Um, but for Colombia, I spend half of the year there. Uh, so I'll alternate between Colombia and the USA. And at times I might only be there for a few weeks, uh, before returning to the U S and my office is actually in Fort Lauderdale and why I chose Colombia that's like my main hub out of the United States is from Fort Lauderdale to Medellin. It's only three hours uh, by, by plane. And then to New York city is about five and a half. So New York city is where I'm from. That's where a lot of my real estate is. Florida is kind of where I prefer to be because of the weather and the taxes. And uh, it's the most convenient for me going down to Rio de Janeiro. It's for, even from Florida is, is a bit of a stretch. It takes me about nine to 11 hours, depending if they're doing directs or not from New York City even longer. So while I still have my home healthcare business running, I kind of like to be within a few hours of just getting back if there's some sort of emergency or we're being surveyed or something along those lines where I need to be present. Um, I, I need that flexibility. The other countries that are further away, they don't really allow that. As far as managing the companies are concerned, uh, I have a workforce. So I, I've built out my companies to, to function independent of me so that my presence isn't necessarily needed. I have uh, a director that manages all the construction when we're renovating our properties. I have my handyman that do the scrambling for you know the miscellaneous work that comes up. And then in the home care organization, you know, at our peak point, we had over 400 employees. So there's there's more than enough workforce to to kind of 
parse out the staffs, the, the parse out the staff and the responsibilities so that things run really independently of, of my presence. Well, it's so interesting because I think that a false belief pattern that a lot of people have when they're looking at biz, being a business owner or an entrepreneur is that they need to be there every single day in the thick of it. Now, you have just given us an example of a business with, what did you say, nearly 400 staff and you still spend half of the year in a foreign country working remotely. So I think that that crushes that false belief pattern that if someone who's listening today is thinking, wow, I have a business and... I want to take the next step. I want to be an expat. I want to travel. I want to be a digital nomad or perpetual traveler or however it fits into their life. That it is possible and there are other people who are doing it. And it doesn't have to be just that solopreneur type of business where you're a one-man band. Actually, larger companies can do this. And even if you're at the very high levels, you can do this. So that's amazing. Yeah, the larger the company, the more probable it is. You know, the solopreneurs, they're responsible for everything. You know, I, I would never start businesses like that because I like to have that flexibility. And I think if you're building a business, you should be building that business so that it pays you, not that you become the employee or a dependent of that business somehow. That That's the last thing that I want to be in. And I think a lot of people go into being entrepreneurs because of the freedom it allows them in comparison to a job, um, but they often end up building a company that imprisons them really where where they can't even take a vacation anymore because their their income is directly fixed to their activity which is com the complete it should be the complete opposite my brother is actually in that situation and he's a physician who runs his own practice but when he's not there he doesn't earn right so he he, he has to pick and choose when he goes away and you know to me it's it's it's, it's kind of crazy well i think that a lot of people have a misunderstanding about being self-employed and being an entrepreneur. They think that because neither one of them has a boss, they're therefore the same thing. But actually your clients be, become the boss. And if you stop working, then the money stops. As an entrepreneur, your job should be solving problems. And if you're able to create processes and systems and have someone else do that, that's where I think you're going to really be able to scale. If you're an accountant, a lawyer, a doctor, and you just own your own practice, and I mean, you don't have someone that you report to, that's cool. That's great. But that's not really entrepreneurship. You need to figure out a way that you have other people working for you. Now you can, like I said, have a person do it, or you can automate it. You can use software. If you have other things, as long as you're not doing it yourself and you look at how you can scale that, that's when you're going to be able to take the next leap, I would say. So let's talk a little bit about Colombia, a little bit about Brazil, and then I want to go deep into Italy because I was reading some of the things that you've done in Italy, and I'm super excited to learn from you and, and figure out a little bit more. So you mentioned earlier that you're in Colombia and you're in Medellin. Is that right? Correct. So why Medellin? And I've traveled extensively in Colombia and, and I've been to Medellin and I love it, but it's been a while. What were the things that attracted you to this place in particular? Primarily the weather and the people. So when you look at the Colombian culture at large, it's pretty much the same as you go throughout the country. But if you think about any country, the big, big city is usually a little more industrialized, usually a little more cold as far as the people, more expensive in general. But when you start looking at the subsidies, you start to get really cool cities with just a different social vibe. Best example I could give is look at New York City versus Charlotte, North Carolina. 
New York City is a great city to live in, but the people are cold, pace is fast, cost of living expensive, but a city like Charlotte or like Austin, Texas is on the cheaper side. The people just have a different sensibility, a different pace, a different value set than just money. So Medellin is very much that way. Um, the weather is awesome. They call it the city of the eternal spring. Um, it does rain a lot, like like in the spring, um, but the weather is sits around between 70 and 80 degrees every single day, uh, partly cloudy with a chance of rain <laughs> every single day. <laughs> so it's, it's very static weather. Um, if you like that spring weather and you don't want to be too hot, you're never going to be too cold. Um, this Tons of places that have no air conditioning, no heating, no hot water. There, there's no climate control because not needed, which is which is kind of cool. But Medellin in general is a is a cheap city. It's a developed city. Has more than four million people living there. So everything that you would come to associate with Western living, you could find there, but at a fraction of the price with people who still have that Spaniard sensibility of family and quality time first work second. And that's something that was always missing from my life being born and raised in New York City. That makes sense. That makes sense. When I talk about Panama, which is where I'm based out of, and people ask me questions about it, and we talk about the upside, we talk about the downside. um, I always have to put in there, I mean, it's hot here. It's really hot, like really, really, really hot all the time, always, no matter what. So I can definitely see the attraction for a city, which is that springtime all the time type of feel. Because, yeah, if you go outside, and, it, and it's not so bad. I'm wearing, I, I wear shorts and a T-shirt. A lot of times I'm an entrepreneur. I have a, my home, home office. If I have to put on a suit and go down to immigration or I have to go to the firm or something like that or meet with clients, I mean, I'm dying. Like, I'm just absolutely dying out there. So... Climate is one of those things that can be important um, that gets overlooked. Okay, so we've covered a couple of the upsides for Colombia. I mean, I think, I believe that a lot of people, when they hear Colombia, they're going to still have a lot of negative connotations in their mind from a troubled past. I guess straight off the bat, do you still see all those problems and the things that are on Netflix documentaries, or are those kind of gone? And and once again, I'm kind of teeing this up for you, but I mean... You spend time there today, this week, last month. I mean, you know it very recently. So the, the thing is, Colombia does have that, that stigma, right? That past, that Escobar pass. And those days are far gone, completely different country nowadays. Um, the thing is, there's still this air of kind of safety issues, but not to the point that it's like a, any different than any other major city in the world. The issue in Colombia is that there's just wage disparity, right? Somebody may be only earning $400, $500 a month, and that would probably be about the median income. So if you have this country where everybody's making four or $500 a month, if you're not in the nicer parts of town, you're, you're going to come across people who may be financially desperate. So robbing you for an iPhone that is worth two or three times their monthly salary might seem like a pretty good idea if you're a 19-year-old male who plays soccer all the time and could probably grab that phone and run. It (laughs) seems like an easy score. Um, So things like that still exist. But if you're an expat who's doing financially well, you're kind of insulated from that sort of thing. You You could more or less avoid 
any kind of troubled area and still live a very high quality of life. Um, and I would say that's probably the only downside. And it's not really a safety issue. It's not a safety issue for me. I'm not too concerned with that. I know how to kind of move around a big city. Same thing will happen to you in New York City if you're standing on on a train. You could get your phone snatched as well. So it's more or less the same thing. But what's a little... So it's more on the petty side opposed to like the violent crime, the murders or Correct. the things that... The car that, bombs. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah those exactly. Which, as a side note, when I was in Colombia last was 2003 and there were car bombings there like two blocks away. But I mean, we're talking almost 20 years ago since I've been there. And also side note, I love Colombia. Regardlessly, I love Colombia. It was one of the nicest countries with the most sweet and down to earth and generous human beings I've ever met on planet earth. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I haven't I haven't had any car bombings um, yet, but and, and, and realistically, I haven't run into any sort of trouble. So I'm grateful for that, but it does happen just like anywhere else. And, and I don't let that govern my decision as to where, whether I'm going to live there or not. If my if I really felt unsafe where I was the victim of a violent crime, um, a petty crime, I, I kind of consider that just paying the tax, you know, or I got to give up your cell phone every now and then, so be it. That wouldn't bother me. Um, but I think for for some people, what may be an issue is just seeing that, that equity gap between the haves and the have-nots. That bothers me because it's like, wow, you know, the the upper class and the wealthy, they, you don't even need to make that much to be part of that group. If you're making $2,000, $3,000 a month, you're doing really well in Colombia. You're living in the nicer parts of town. You have a nicer home. Life is really good for you. I, I would say making $3,000 a month in Colombia is probably on par with making $150,000 in a major US city. You're gonna have like an equivalent lifestyle. Um, so to me, that's that's you know a fifth of of the cost, right, for for New York City. So I think that's pretty good. But when you see how other people are living, um, for me, it's kind of it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Where it's just like, man, I, I wish there's more that I could do to to kind of boost general income, provide more employment opportunities, and that sort of thing. That that would be my only downer. Um, well, I think saying that, you actually going there and spending time in the country, renting a place, hiring people, working with them, buying the food, tipping nicely when you go out to the restaurant. I mean, I would rather see someone do that than go and give money to charity to some massive organization where tons of it is wasted and it's used on advertising and the CEO flies in a private jet around the world and it's like 7% of it. At least you as an expat, are you're going out there and you're driving the economy and you're rewarding the people who are working for themselves or working for a living and trying to make a difference and make their life better. So I do think that being an expat, you are having a positive influence on the country that you're living in. And I, I personally don't ever see that as taking advantage of or exploiting um, other countries or other workers. Yeah, especially if you're not taking that approach of exploitation. Like I, obviously, there's people who are going to exploit that. But you know, I have a friend in Venezuela. We, we do business together. He is actually one of my first outsourced employees for my home care company. He, he ended up starting his own uh, outsourcing firm based on his experience with me. And he pays his staff above average for way above average for the local economy and is still a, a huge discount 
for any employer, right? So it's a win-win for both people who are involved. And if you look at it that way, where, where you're not take, truly taking advantage of people, where you're undercutting them and really squeezing them, but you're affording them a higher quality of life, better working conditions, et cetera, um, then, then everybody's winning in that situ- situation and you shouldn't be upset. Perfect. Now, in Colombia in general, have you had a chance to travel through other parts of Colombia? Is there any other highlights or things that you really enjoyed? I know that when I went there, I had a chance to visit a lot of the country, and I I really did think it was so beautiful. They had so much to offer, and I always try to take an opportunity and highlight that to people because of the the troubled past that we mentioned briefly. Um, I guess my point is give Colombia a chance because there's a lot to say there or a lot to see there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there's a few major cities. Colombia has a, has a coast and it has pretty much the jungle, right? If you want to look at it that way, like a mountainous jungle. So if you want to be coastal and you want to enjoy the sea, you could go up to Cartagena, Barranquilla, uh, Santa Marta, and, and you're going to have access to the Caribbean Sea. Uh, it's not as nice as like the Bahama beaches, but it's definitely nicer than New York City beaches. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and then if you want to be kind of like in the mountainside or in the countryside, there's so much to do and so much to see. You know, truly natural wonders, like amazing cliffs, amazing river towns, amazing. Like there's one town called Guatape, which is right outside of Medellin. It's like a, it's a dam that's actually what it is that they allow to backfill into the mountains and create like this lake region, really scenic, super small town, comfortable, awesome place to break away, get away, get on a boat. It's amazing. There's so many things that you could do in Colombia That's just not being in the big city. And actually when you leave the big cities, it's even safer because you're now being welcomed by small town folks and it's completely different environment for anybody who hasn't been to Colombia and is considering expatting out of their country, I would say visit and see it for yourself. And I'm pretty sure you're going to consider living there. Sweet. All right. Brazil. I'm also a massive fan of Brazil. Um, I had an opportunity to watch several of your videos on Brazil where you are actually going around to different neighborhoods and looking at investing and talking about the culture and stuff like that. When did your experience start with Brazil and like, what were the things that I guess originally attracted you to Brazil? Well, my experience with Brazil started about two years ago. I went there for the first time, I believe January of 2019. And me and my buddies, we, we usually do like an annual trip every January to a new country that we've never visited before. And none of us had visited Brazil. And, you know, Brazil is a huge country, 220 million people in the Western Hemisphere. But so many people from the West haven't been to Brazil. It's, it's pretty strange. Um, so we're like, well, we all haven't been to Brazil. Let's check it out. And I think all of us fell in love with the place. Brazil is very kind of American in a way. And I know when I say that, people kind of like, what? What are you talking about? Brazilians are very prideful and Brazilians have their own culture, their own defined culture. And it's a culture of immigrants, right? So in Brazil, you have obviously the Portugal or the Portuguese influence. You have a lot of Spaniards, a lot of Italians that came over, a lot of Western Europeans that came over, but then you have the West Africans that were brought during the slave trade. And then you have the indigenous folks of Brazil. And all of these cultures have truly fused together to create what is Brazilian culture. 
And the the thing that I think is similar with the states is that one, the population is large, the land mass is large. You have different environments as you travel from like Rio de Janeiro to Nordeste or down into the south, like towards Florinopolis. You're going to get different climates, different people. Um, you, it's 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 really an interesting place, and. So one of the things that really surprised me about Brazil and, and really made it stand out, it's it's not like the other Latino countries. At all. I thought it would be a lot like <laughs> Colombia and Peru and other South American countries because of where it's located and you know its history. But it's really its own thing. Um, it has some touches and some flavors of Western Europe just because of you know the colonial era, but it's morphed into something else. The beaches are fantastic. The people in Brazil are probably the most welcoming and inviting that I've met, I think, in the world. They want to show you what makes their country cool. Kind of like Americans. Americans will always talk about America's great and et cetera. But Brazilians will say, let me show you. I'm going to take you out every day of this week, and I'm going to show you why Brazil is freaking awesome and why I wouldn't leave for any amount of money. <laughs> and so, so like that that's what Brazil is and and as a foreigner if you like to experience different cultures and you like to be embraced then you're going to feel at home in Brazil and and that's what happened with me. Yeah, and I find them very passionate as well. Like a a deep desire to live their lives, to eat and to drink and to experience things, to touch and taste. And I mean, this is not a com- this is not a country or a community where everybody just sits at home all day long and plays on the computer or something. I mean, they're out there, they're on the street, they're partying, there's music, there's always something on the go, there's always someone to talk to. I love that, well, love for life. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but I do find Brazil very pa- Brazilians very passionate. Absolutely. I agree with you. That, that's that's the best way of putting it. They have a passion for living and they're not going to negotiate that for anyone. So the downside to that is is kind of the work-life balance. Like especially, you know, if you're from the US, Canada, Germany, you're going to England, you're going to say, whoa, man, you need to work a little more. Um, but they're going to be like, well, you're working too much. <laughs> you need to relax a bit. And you know, that's something that you, you get out of Brazil and, it, and it's refreshing. It, it's a reminder that you're here to live. And if, when you're ready to live, Brazil's a place. We're just going to pause for a second on the interview because I want to tell you about this special resource that I have for you. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It is a PDF downloadable report and you're going to find it at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, why do I want to tell you about this? Well, it is an amazing resource for anyone out there who is looking to go offshore, to become an expat, expat hopefuls. If you're looking at immigration or plan B residencies or any of these types of things that we talk about on the show, this really condenses the information into really easy to understand. And then from there, it gives you all the resources, links to the additional resources or who you can work with, the professionals involved in this. 
So I've had some amazing feedback on this and I want to give it to you free, 100% free. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com and at the very top of the page, you will see the special report. You can sign up. There's no credit card needed. There's no nothing like that. I just want you to have this resource because I think it's really important and I think it's going to really serve you well. So enjoy. Go to expatmoneyshow.com, download your free special report, and let's jump back into today's interview. Nice. So from there, from that first trip, you went down and it sounds to me like you fell in love with the place. How did you decide that you were going to start investing there and that this might be a place where you actually want to put some of your capital? Well, once I feel good in the place, um, I've already started to, to, to look at other countries as far as building out this portfolio. Like My goal is to have tw- at least 12 properties in different cities throughout the world so that in one year I could live in like each one, one month at a time at like the best time of the year to be there. So I already had this in my mind. So once I go somewhere and I and it's new to me and I'm like, wow, this place feels like a place I could call home, I immediately start thinking about, well, what's the cost on real estate here? Where would I wanna buy something? Would I be able to rent this out as a vacation rental in the 11 months that I'm not there? What's possible? So once I felt great, in Brazil, the wheel started turning to look for, for real estate. The first year that I was there, uh, I ended up going back three more times in that year, just because it kind of binge on something once I like it. Um, and then I started to really get a sense of where I wanted to be after seeing a, a few different parts of town. And then I started to kind of look at how am I going to, to actually go in and get uh, some real estate. So last fall, I started searching and shopping for properties. And and since I flip real estate in the States, I am always looking for the value add or the distressed asset in a way. So I started looking at, well, where is there going to be these distressed assets that make sense as a vacation rental? Where can I generate income on tourist uh, income or, or renting out an Airbnb, that sort of thing? And that's kind of what I did in this past trip. And what I settled on was that I kind of want to get away from the Copacabana region because everybody knows Copacabana and it will be great as, as, uh, as a starting point, but I wanted to have something that could accommodate my family a little more and be a little bit off that beaten path, off the regular path. So I started looking at these two towns that are north of the Copacabana region. Um, and those two towns are Cabo Frio and Buzios. Buzios is kind of like the Palm Springs of the state of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, more, I guess, high net worth individuals have their vacation homes there. It's on the cliffs. It's overlooking the ocean. It's really gorgeous and built up and developed for tourism. A lot of people from Argentina are visiting and the high net worth people from Brazil visit Buzios. Uh, if you talk to people about Buzios that are from that region, they know it as being a kind of a place to be. Um, but Cabo Frio is like a midpoint between Rio de Janeiro and Buzios. And there's a, there's some property that I, that I haven't all, I actually have an accepted offer on a land lot right now. And if all goes well, then I'll be purchasing that land lot and developing a two family house on there. That's going to serve as my property and vacation rental, like it's five units up from the beach. Um, really well located in an expanding part of town. 
So that's where I ended up settling just for value and cost and, and what I think, where, where I think there's some, there's some opportunity. Well, I think one of the most interesting things about Brazil is that if you're doing the vacation rental or the Airbnb or the short-term rental or anything like that, you actually don't need to look at foreign tourists coming in to stay at your place. Brazil is such a large economy and there are so many people there and there are a lot of people with money that you can actually just take care, just service the local market and still be at a high occupancy rate. I've looked at real estate there and that's really what I've seen. I mean, during my travels, it's not always the case. If you're looking at vacation rentals, you need the European travelers, you need the Americans or the Canadians. And with something like COVID, which has just happened, where borders have closed and airplanes are not flying and airports are closed, it's like, you know, you would be in a really ser- serious situation. But in Brazil, I mean, they might just be trying to escape the, the city for long weekends and get out there. Have you seen this as well? That's typical. That's that's my same exact observation. And that's why I say it's it's a lot like America. A lot of Americans don't leave for vacation. They'll, you know, travel to Miami, they'll travel to uh, California, they'll go to New York, San Francisco, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone. They'll they'll travel and stay and consume tourism within their own country. And Brazilians do the, the do the same thing. And I saw the same. So like the people who go to Buzios and Cabo Frio are going to be from Rio de Janeiro, like the, the main city of the capital. And they just want to get away from Copacabana Beach because it's too crowded or there's too many tourists or it's too expensive because the tourists are driving up the prices there. It's like, I'm not paying this much for a beach day. No, no, I'm going to Cabo Frio and I'm going to get away from the noise. Almost like people from New York City going out to the Hamptons, right? It's kind of that sort of thing. Like, well, I, I need this break from the city and I'm going to summer in Cabo Frio, I'm going to summer in Buzios. It's it's that sort of vibe, and the the downside to that is that it's also going to be priced in in like what's acceptable for the Brazilians, right? So it may seem like a little bit of money for an American um, when you're looking at at a at an accommodation like a, a three hundred thousand dollar house in Buzios, right? Three hundred thousand U.S. You might be able to rent that house out. Or as a vacation rental for two thousand dollars a month, and that would kind of that would kind of be like the upper limit, right? And it's, it's not that much money compared to the spend on the real estate. But if you were to price it higher, you would price out the locals that they think you're you know out of your mind. So you can't price it to the euro or to the U.S. dollar. You have to price it to the AI and what's reasonable for that country, which is good because then the prices of the assets kind of reflect that that what 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 does the market call for the price right so mm-hmm. well, of- and then when you're doing a v- a value add on it and you're doing it as a lifestyle buy because you genuinely like to spend time in the place. Like, how do you quantify something like that? Like, you can't. Like, I mean, your experience when you go there and stay in your own home and you do that every year for a month, I mean, that's not going to be reflected in your PL, but I mean, that's an emotional decision. That's something that is going to affect you and your life and your family. Same thing if you have friends and you want to send them down, having a positive influence on the people that you know and encouraging them to go down there and experience something new. Yep, exactly. I agree with you. And and that's the way that I look at that these the majority of these international purchases that I'm doing now, they're totally vanity purchases. I don't encourage people to go out there and do these things as like, here's a good investment play. I would be looking at it completely different if it were 
for the bottom line. My bottom line investing happens in the U.S. I, you know, have my assets fixed to the U.S. dollar. I earn in U.S. dollars. I earn in a lot of U.S. dollars, and I take those dollars to other countries and live a whole lot better. So I, I don't encourage people to look at it as pure investment plays. I really look at it as like a total vanity purchase, but I still use the same investing principles to make my decisions as far as what sort of rate of return should I expect on this asset, uh, making sure that I'm buying under market value. Right now, the reason why I'm buying in, in Brazil is that the AI is about 5.5 to 1 US dollars. When I first went to Brazil, is at 4. So we're talking about a, like a 33 to 40% devaluation in, in currency during this COVID mess. So I'm getting a huge discount by buying these properties currently. So that's the way that I'm thinking about it. But it, it's not a pure investment play. That makes sense. So what other things did you learn during your experience of trying to buy in Brazil? Because I imagine there's going to be so many differences that it would probably make you a better investor in general because you've pushed the limits of what you normally understand. Because this is a little bit out there. Like, I mean, buying foreign real estate is not what most Canadians or Americans are doing every day. Yeah, it's actually, the process so far seems a lot like my process when purchasing in Italy. It's different in that it's a more or less a cash economy. People aren't really securing too much debt, especially in these outskirt towns. They're not really securing mortgages to make these purchases. And if I were to secure a mortgage as an American, I'm going to have to jump through a lot of hoops and circles. I'm going to have to have fully audited financials. And the interest rates are going to be awful. Nothing about it is going to seem as comfortable and familiar as a U.S. purchase. However, the mechanics are virtually the same. You make an offer, offer is accepted. Uh, you sign contracts that outline the terms and conditions. You do your due diligence period, and then you close. Now, you close with a notary instead of like a title agent or an attorney like we do here, but it's, it's more or less the same role. They have the same function. That notary is kind of like a title agent in the States. Um, but the difference is kind of how do you finance that deal and maybe some little steps as far as like getting credentialed for uh, residency, getting like a tax ID number, getting registered in that way. Um, might be the, the, the slight differences, but it's very much the same major differences. How do you finance your real estate? Mm -hmm. And do you work with local representation usually when you're buying overseas or are you trying to figure this out yourself? No, I work with local representation. I, I, you know, I don't speak or, or I speak some Portuguese. Um, I could kind of get by, I could travel alone and get by, but I kind of defer to the professionals to, to guide me. So my strategy is always to work with the referrals of the agents and the people that I trust. So if I have a friend there and then they refer a certain agency or a family member, then I'll work with that person. And typically if they're helping you in that way, they're not trying to shaft you. I noticed that the international crowd, once they start, once they start gravitating towards you and trying to develop a relationship with you, they're going to hold your hand and try to make sure everything goes perfectly because they don't want you to see like the, the bad side in the bureaucracy of their country. So they're going to like, Hey, I'm going to put you in good hands and just follow them all the way. So I really work off of the professional referrals. Who do they like to work with? Who do they feel is professional? And 
build off of that. Well, and then I guess that kind of comes back to our point about the pride of the country. They want to showcase the best of their country. If you come down there as an investor and go to buy and you get screwed over, well, that negatively reflects not just on them, but on their country and their community and their culture. And so maybe that is a good way to make sure that if you have a good experience, you're going to go forwards and tell other people about it like we're doing on our interview today. Um, if you have a terrible experience, then you're not going to be speaking the same way. So let's jump into Italy because I have here in my notes about buying one euro homes in Sicily. Tell me the story. What is this? What, what, what are we talking about here? Okay. Backstory, I'll make it quick. My brother knows I'm a real estate investor, obviously. He sees an Apple uh, uh, news article, one euro homes in Italy. He sends it to me immediately. He's like, have you heard about this? You know, maybe you should check it out. Another little bit of backstory, the same thing happened in New York City and in, in Detroit at some point where they were selling properties that were dilapidated for $1 just to get somebody in there to fix it and start collecting taxes. So we missed that boat because we were too young in New York City at the time to invest in real estate. And he was like, you know, this is our opportunity. And I was like, all right, cool, I'll check it out. And I thought to myself, you know what, it's a, it's a dollar. Um, I'm gonna get a nice two week vacation out of this, right? I'm gonna fly to Italy. I've never been to Sicily before, so let me check this out. And at the worst, I get a two week vacation and I get a bunch of content from my YouTube channel. That, that was my mindset going in. So I set up an appointment with the agent and uh, I think I saw the article in October. My appointment was in February of 2020. Fly out to Italy, check out these properties. And the majority of these one euro properties are crappy. Um, they are in really bad shape. They're like ruined shape. And essentially what's happened is that in rural towns, people from Italy had left Italy, right? During the, during the war, um, when Italy entered the Eurozone, they started going to Berlin, Frankfurt, London, wherever the jobs are. So the youth isn't replenishing these rural towns. They're either con consolidating down into the major cities within Italy or just leaving Italy altogether. So these houses are like grandma's house that nobody has really looked after. And mm -hmm. so they're single family homes. Um, well, for the most part, they're single family homes. There's some of them, there's like one building that was like an orphanage and it's huge. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, it's like huge. So there's, there, you could, you could buy like churches. Um, you could buy farmhouses. There's, there's inventory that you could buy in all different types, lighthouses, you name it. Like just, these are just abandoned structures. So when you go there and you, you actually see these properties, the better inventory obviously gets scooped up first. So what remains are these ruined properties. Um, so when I went there, I was kind of like, man, this is, this is pretty awful. Uh, I'm not sure I want to take on this heavy lift, but I was like, you know what? I came down here to, to buy properties. Um, so if I buy a one euro property then whatever, <laughs> I'll, I'll figure it out. I don't want to kind of backtrack on that. But then the agent saw that the people who were on the tour were kind of like, uh, these are awful. And then from there, she was like, well, we do have other listings that are in the same part of town, but they're what we call the superior market. So she was like, how about we break for lunch? I'll get 
a few of the keys for the superior market and I'll kind of show you those. Some of the people started complaining like, oh, here comes the bait and switch, et cetera, et cetera. But I was like, let me, let's see, you know, what they have and, and kind of how they're priced. So I ended up buying two properties in the premium market and not the one euro homes. And this is why. The first property I saw, which I purchased, was for sale for 5,000 euros. This was a one bedroom corner Valletta that it was about 400 to 500 square feet. So we're talking about like 200 square feet on the first floor, which is just kind of like kitchen living area. And then upstairs with a bathroom and bedroom, right? That's it. But it was maybe one block away from the main square and it was in livable condition. It had some chipping paint, the bathroom was outdated, but I could go in there, paint it, clean it and live in it, right? So I was like, well, let's compare the cost to get a similar size one euro home to this standard. And it would be way more than 5,000 euros. And I was like, this is a no brainer. I was like, the replacement cost on this, if I had to rebuild this from scratch, would cost me 40 or $50,000. I'm getting it for five. I'm getting it for less than the bricks. <laughs> so I was like, this is, this, is, this is good for me. She showed a few more. There was another one for like 8,000, another for 10,000. And then we came across uh, the other property that I bought for 12,000 euros. This was a three-story uh, home that was facing like the mountainside. So I have like these cliffside views. This one was in even better condition. It just needed to be mopped. And that was about it. Came with the furniture, 12,000 euros for that. Awesome view. And what I saw in that house, just imagine your typical row house. So it's about a thousand square feet, maybe 15 feet wide by... I don't know, 30 or 40 feet deep on each floor. And like New York City, these townhouses kind of have like a common entrance, usually stairs right in front of you and then kind of a, an offshoot to the right. And I immediately saw like, oh, I could convert this into a two family house. So I was like, I could have a studio apartment on the first floor because there's a kitchen there, the bathroom. And I was like, in the upper two levels, I can renovate them to my standards, add an additional bathroom because there was another kitchen on the third floor and make this a two family house. So when I'm traveling with my family, I could have my entire family there. I could travel with my parents, they could stay in the studio. I could travel with whoever and kind of parse out and have all the space that I need. And when I'm not there, I now have three units instead of two units to rent in Musumeli, Sicily. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right, so lots of things to unpack. Now, with this program that they're running, um, do any of these come with the land? Are you actually, do you actually own the land or are you leasing the land or how does that work? Yeah, it's, a, it's full ownership. So it's not like, a, like Thailand wow. where you have like a 99-year lease. It is, yeah, or Costa Rica at a 25-year lease. So Wow, I didn't even know that about Costa Rica. But yeah, you own, you own your property outright. And then is there a contract with the municipality that you must put a certain amount of money in to restore these projects because that would kind of be exactly where my mind would go oh it's one dollar but you need to put in a hundred thousand dollars or commit to putting to restoration of this area yes there is that condition so there you have to commit that within three years you do two things you ensure the structural integrity of the building mean that it's not going to collapse on anybody or, or kill not anybody. Dangerous. Yep. Okay. And you make sure that the facade is at least updated so that it doesn't look like crap, right? So, you know, th that's it. 
you have to get that done in three years. If you don't get that done in three years, you get fined. Some of the municipalities require you to put up like a 5,000 euro surety bond that says, hey, I'm putting this deposit. It's released to me once I complete the, the repairs. That way, when they do go to fine you, they already have the money. They know that you know, they're not collecting. Um, that really isn't that big of a deal because if you're the type of person who's going to buy one of those one euro properties, your mindset is that you're going to be rebuilding it anyway. They don't give you a dollar amount. They just give you a time frame to get it done, right? To give you a little bit of urgency to get it done. Um, so it's not like you have to pour in a hundred thousand dollars or anything like that. I would say you could probably budget about $50 a square foot if it's in the ruined condition to get it back to, to a standard of living that's okay. But there's one thing that they don't really talk about so much, which are the tax credits that are available for people who are doing renovations of their homes. You could get up to 110% tax credit, meaning that they're paying you to fix these homes. So you could get the house for a dollar. Real cost is about $3,000 or so because you got to pay the legal fees. fees and closing guys and costs and stuff. Exactly. And then, okay. and then you can start applying for the tax credits. They, they range from like 30% to 110%. Doing something like your facade, I believe you get a 90% tax credit. So you're only paying 10% of the true cost for that. And the tax credit is negotiable at the bank or the post office. So it's not like the tax, a tax credit the post in the form office. <laughs> of a deduction against your income or something like that. You actually get a yeah. voucher that you could exchange at you know some discount of the face value for the work that you've done. So you could get a lot, a lot, especially the heavy ticket items like your roof, your facade, um, your HVAC system. If you need to make seismic improvements, those are on the higher side and more like the cosmetic, you know, simple things are on the lower side. So they really incentivize you to, to get this work done and you're not even paying for mm-hmm. it. That's wild. That is just absolutely crazy. So, okay. So let's dig into a little bit more of the details. Um, are these considered like heritage homes? Do you have to have a certain type of look and feel for the place? Like, is there really strict zoning on what can, how you can, um, not decorate, decorate's the wrong word, but develop these properties? There are some restrictions depending on the property and depending on, yeah, really depending on the property and maybe even the municipality. So let's just say this was a church, for instance, or something along those lines. Uh, they don't want you to kind of do the facade or, or change it in a way that isn't consistent with the look and feel of the town. Um, that sort of thing might be restricted, but you're not going to deviate too far from that. Um, if you if you do, they might intervene and say, well, this is not an approved color for the town or something along those lines. But it's not mm-hmm. as hardcore as like uh, some of the landmarks. San zones. Francisco or something. <laughs> yeah. Like some of the landmark and zones where, they, where they're saying that like your cornices have to be made out of wood from this type of wood, this color from this time period, hand carved, you know, like it's, it's, it's not that extreme, but you just have to make sure that you, you maintain the look and feel what you do on the inside, unless it's one of the, like truly a historic property on the inside, you kind of go at it however you want, modernize it, keep the traditional feel. What you do on the inside mm-hmm. is your own business. Amazing. And then are you able to knock down grandma's house and put in a five-door 
townhouse or something like that on the piece of property? I really don't know. I didn't I didn't really look at it from that perspective to say, all right, this this lot is 20 by 50 and only has the one story house on it. Um, let me tear this down and build up a, I don't know, five story row house. Um, I don't know if they'd be totally against that, but it may not make sense financially to do so. But I didn't, I didn't, I really didn't look into it to, to be honest with you. So I don't want to say yes or no, but um, as far as what's there, you, you pretty much can, can have at it however you want. Well, if any of my listeners have gone through this process as well and have some insights, if you go to expatmoneyforum.com, I'm going to make sure that this episode is in there. So put your comments in there. Um, I'm very curious. I've actually heard of this program a couple of years ago, but have never done some real due diligence or look at it. So it's super fascinating, Carl, to kind of pick your brain about how it worked and your experience through going through it. I guess my next question is, are there any residencies attached to this? Are there an opportunity for extended stays in Italy as you develop these programs and projects? Or is it really you're, you're still subject to the exact same tourist laws as everyone else? You know, it's funny. You're, you're acting like the, the FAQ list that I always get. <laughs> uh, the first question is like, what's the, what are the stipulations? The second question is, do I get residency? And uh, the answer is no. <laughs> Sorry to be predictable, but I mean, these are, re- these are legitimate questions that uh, run through my head because I, I immediately put myself in a perspective of, hmm, does this make sense for my life? Is this something that I would like to put my money behind? I mean, I run this podcast completely uh, selfishly. I get really cool people on that I get to pick your brain and ask all kinds of questions because I like to learn things and I, I think it's just so neat to talk about. Yeah, no, I, I completely get it. But it's just funny because I'm thinking about it. It's like everybody asks these questions and, and it's true. They're genuine questions from someone who's curious about potentially buying one of these things. But yeah, you don't get residency. Um, you can apply for residency on like a, a retirement residency visa. Uh, to qualify for that, I believe you need to be making like 2,500 euros or 2,000 euros per month passively. So you need to be able to demonstrate that you have a passive means of income um, and that not necessarily like a digital nomad income, but truly passive. So retirement account um, that's spinning off some sort of dividend or, or uh, some sort of annuity, uh, real estate investments, your business that's pension plan, something exactly. like that. But if you're able to show that you're not going to be a financial burden on the Italian government, um, then you could get residency, but you're not automatically qualified because you own real estate. You, you do get a few minor perks by owning real estate there. Like right now, travel to Italy is restricted unless you have like major business to tend to or you have to tend to your like a, a housing matter. So if you own a house, you could claim, hey, I got to tend to this housing matter and get like special provisions to travel into, into Italy at this time. Um, but as far as carte blanche residency for a buck, not happening. Yeah, well, people are going to ask, so we might as well answer in advance. Now, talk to me a little bit about the tax situation. Talk to me a little bit. Are there HOAs? Is there... Um, Property taxes, how does that work? What are going to be your ongoing responsibilities to the community and an outlay from there? Yeah, so there are tax obligations and everybody says, you know, in Europe, the taxes are so high. So my property taxes are $600 a year. Wow. (laughs) 
yeah. not exactly a massive burden for you to uh, to pay every exactly. year. Exactly. When they told me 600 I was like, oh, 600 a month. I was like, man, that kind of sucks. But <laughs> like, no, per year. And I was like, what? And then on top of that, <laughs> if you actually do get residency, you could claim what's called prima casa, which is your primary residency. And you don't have to pay property taxes on your primary residency. But if it's like a vacation home or an investment property, that's when you start paying taxes on your property. Or if your properties are like a certain class of property. So if it has a certain value or higher, then you start to pay taxes on it. But if it's just your primary residency, your humble house, no property tax. Incredible. All right. So let's let's talk about your properties in, spe- in specifics and, you know, share any of the numbers that you feel comfortable with. Okay, so your first property you bought for 5,000 and the second property for it was something like 11 or 12,000, correct? Correct. 12,000. And then you had to put in about 3,000 on each one for closing costs, everything like correct. that. Correct. What were you putting in for restoration to to bring it up to a level that you would want to rent it out at? And then following from that kind of have you been able to rent it? Are people traveling to this region? Are you using it? Are you um, able to generate income from it? Okay, so my initial budget for the smaller 5,000 euro house was around $8,000. That was to restucco the walls of the interior, uh, paint it. I actually redid the entire floors and epoxy resin floors. And I refinished the bathroom in entirety, rewired the house for 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 around that price I, I went over budget a little bit there um and i'm and i'm not done yet so the final numbers aren't in but i'm closer to about twelve thousand bucks um and then in the larger twelve thousand total twelve thousand with the restoration the closing costs and the property no 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 that is uh twelve thousand plus the property twelve thousand plus the property correct cool. so we're talking okay. about seventeen thousand eighteen thousand dollars for this one okay. bedroom house my other property, the 12,000 euro property, I decided to do the facade before I knew the tax credit existed. I didn't get any credits for that, but I was like, ah, oh, the facade is ugly. Let me you know, fix this up. Um, I added a second bathroom. I took down these vinyl walls that they had and restuckled the interior walls and painted the entire house. And I'm in for about the same amount uh, because I added an additional bathroom, the additional plumbing, electricity is a full-fledged bathroom, so that that took a bit of the of the budget. Plus, the facade took a bit of the budget. Um, but I'm I'm all in for that one at about twenty six thousand, twenty seven thousand bucks, um, and that's and that's a two-family residence, right? So, you know, fourteen fourteen thousand dollars a unit, average fifteen thousand dollars a unit. I I, I think is free and clear yeah. that's i mean that's not the down payment in most places like yeah it's not it's my brazilian mad. property is running me <laughs> way more than that and i'm i'm comparing i'm like man how how's this property in italy cheaper than properties in brazil and brazil is supposed to be a, a weaker economy and it's like i don't understand what's going on here <laughs> but yeah they're that, that cheap. is mad okay so you went over the first time you went shopping then you purchased on that first trip there or you had to come back and yes. go second time, third time. Five thousand bucks, man. There's nothing to really think about. Um, so yeah, so when I, while I was there, I gave my down payment. I signed my offer documents. Right, down payment was ten percent. When I got back to the states, 
the world closed and we finished the everything closing wise via paper. My seller died. One of them was like, she was like 93 years old. So that had to go through their probate process, which took, which got me closed in September of 2020. I started the process in February. Um, everything was done via mail. So the title documents, uh, the proxy documents to have my real estate agent function as my my proxy in the transaction had to be mailed to the United States, original signed, apostasile stamped, sent back, and then uh, closing was just done by wire. And uh, from there, I was able to start renovations once they came out of lockdown. Um, we went into lockdown maybe two or three times. Um, at that point, people can't work, uh, materials can't be shipped, nothing's happening. So I'm still in the process of renovating these homes. I they just reopened <laughs> um, last week. So my like my remaining fixtures arrived this week and my contractor says that he'll be done with the work that we contracted for at some point mm -hmm. next week. Okay. And did you use the same contractor for both properties or did you use different people? Same guys. Same guys? And so far so good? Yeah, so far so good. There was you know one little hiccup, but it was a communication issue. Um, and not necessarily communication like language, but communication in that he had mentioned the big bathroom, which is the bathroom in the little house. And when I told him what the coloring and the like tile configurations were, I was thinking that he meant the bigger house bathroom because we were doing two bathrooms. So I crossed like which one he was referring to. Like we didn't, we, we didn't specify that it was the house on Del Campo or the house on Palo Valenza. It was the big small. So we crossed what was big and what was small. And then, yeah, you know, small house, big bathroom, big house, small bathroom. Swap them. them. Okay. Well, I suppose if that's the biggest hiccup that you've had, I mean, Probably could have been a lot worse. Oh yeah, it could have been a lot worse, but that's it. It, it was minor, and you know, just the cost of materials. They they took care of the labor differences. It, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but yeah, that that was the only thing. the The owner of the construction company is Italian from the town, and he actually was living in England for a while, so he speaks English. And I came across him just walking through the neighborhood. So I was walking through the neighborhood. I saw some guys working on a house and I, like I do in the States, I walked in, met the contractors who were on the site, introduced myself, told them what I was looking for and would they like to bid or, or kind of walk through the properties that I'm looking at and would they like to work for me? Uh, the guys that were there didn't speak English. They're like, <laughs> I pretty much understood that the boss is coming, just wait. So I waited for him and the boss spoke English and everything was good since that point. The house that I walked into happened to belong to another guy from England. Who's at, he's from Zanzibar, living in England, who has an Italian wife. She saw the article too, came for one euro, ended up buying a premium listing, and that was his premium listing being renovated. He actually arrived the next day, took me around town, introduced me to other people, and he's been helping me facilitate my renovation as well. So, you know, there's a community of us one Euro expat folks that are really supporting each other. There's another woman who's 
Uh, her name is Chris. She's covering properties in the Calabria region. That's like the boot of Italy. Um, she's got property in Scalea. I met another person who's doing a similar project in Puglia, which is the heel of Italy. Um, and these are people who are creative types, risk takers, who just said, you know what? What am I doing, you know, killing myself in the States? How about I take this retirement money or how about I take my savings, pick up, start new in a new country because, you know, I'm buying this house outright, $20,000. I'll figure out how to eat, you know, and it's, that's really all it comes down to. I would say that once you have your, your rental obligations covered in Italy, especially in Sicily, you probably can live a decent middle-class life. That means, you know, your food is taken care of, your cell phone, your utilities, um, maybe vacationing twice a year. And these are European vacations. So we're talking about two to three weeks at a time. Um, you could probably do that on 11 or $1,200. That's crazy. That's, I live in the quote unquote third world and I'm paying multiples, multiples, multiples of that to live. So that just goes to show even in a mass, massive economy and huge country like Italy, it's still possible in the West to live for a good price. Yeah, and it's it's actually surprising to people when I say that. Like, there's, like, there's parts of South America and like Mexico and Panama, especially because Panama is dollarized, that the cost of living isn't at that much of a discount compared to the U.S. And it's surprising that like Georgia, for instance, it's really inexpensive to live in. Uh, Hungary is inexpensive to live in as as far as Europe is concerned. Italy is inexpensive. So if if you're more comfortable with, I guess, Western living or Western European living, and, and you want to live on a budget, those are some places that you could check out and do it on the cheap. Sweet. So what would be some advice if someone's listening to this and going, wow, I, I want to check this out. I want to learn more. Now you've been through the process. What are the things that people should kind of keep in mind to kind of um, keep their expectations um, realized, like, don't get so ahead of themselves because I know that there are these obligations. We've covered a lot of them, but how do people manage their expectations? How are they, what is the advice on that type of thing? I would say for the average person, they should budget about thirty to $40,000 and that will cover them kind of regardless of which direction they went in. Get the one euro thing out of your mind because that is kind of like a, a vanity sort of number to get attention. Because if you got one of the one euro ones, you're going to be paying a lot of money, a lot more money than I pay to renovate and probably spending more on the deal altogether. So I would say, you know, get to about $30,000, $40,000 in cash. Know that this is going to be a cash deal and really visit. Italy and see these properties. Don't try to buy these properties sight unseen. The way that Italian culture works, it's not going to be, it's not going to be like the States. It's not going to be like Canada. It's going to be slower. And you're not going to be able to manage this transaction properly online. So go there, get to know people, get to feel the city or the town that you're moving to. Make sure it's the right fit for you you know, understand 
where it is in relation to the things that matter to you, whether it's a hospital, whether it's the coast, whether it's the closest international airport. All these things are the things that you should be considering prior to doing so. A lot of people see the $1 price tag and they're like, wow, man, I'll just buy it online. It doesn't matter. But you know, you, you do have the three-year stipulation. You do have a lot of repairs to make. And you need to know what, what you're buying. Just because it's cheap doesn't make it you know, like a who cares sort of thing. Um, I would definitely get in contact with people like me or Chris, or there's another guy by the name of Davo, who's, who's an American dude now living in Italy doing the same. Um, he bought his house for like 30,000 uh, euros. And, and he went there to because he fell in love with someone who was living in Italy. So he went there and uprooted his life and was like, $30,000. And he's, and he's been buying more properties since, but kind of interact with somebody who's been there and who's done it. Because I think that, that it's not like you're going to learn so much. Like we obviously have a, a lot to teach you, but it's still a basic transaction. But the thing that these people can offer you is insight into like what it really feels like. And I think that's the kind of guidance that people need because the money's not that that much, but you want to make sure you're making the right decision for you and really understanding why you're moving to Italy and why are you pursuing this? If it's just for the cheap property, it's probably not the best idea. But if you like Italian culture, you like Mediterranean living, you like maybe being in a, in a rural area, you just want to get away, you want to retire. Really, you need to know your why and then set your budget and everything else will fall into place. It, it's that simple. Amazing. I love it. Carl, super interesting conversation. Thank you so much for telling us about your adventures and your experiences buying real estate in multiple different countries. If my audience wants to reach out to you, if they want to find out more about what you do, if they want to check out your YouTube channel, where can we send them? Okay, I think the YouTube channel is the best place um, to, to forward anybody. My YouTube channel is ENTP Life. It's a nod to my Myers-Briggs personality type. Um, there I cover how do I invest in real estate here in the United States, mostly one to four family real estate. Uh, it covers how to get into the home healthcare business and my international travels and investment opportunities. So. I'm putting out content every single week. I do a live kind of broadcast every Wednesday where people could ask questions and, and we kind of deep dive into the topic of the week. This week, we were talking about just kind of how to grow a YouTube channel. Next week, I'm talking about Brazil. So my video of the week is going to be about Buzios and then details on Buzios so for people who have questions about life in Brazil, how much do things cost, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all that information can be found right on my channel. I answer every comment. So if you want to reach out to me, that's probably the best way to do so. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you for having me. Be well. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, 
Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.